0: Everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. I am dying to know who out there recognizes this song. Surely, if you are of my generation, you know it. You've heard it a million times. It's called Beat City. It's by a group called the Flower Pot Men, and it was featured prominently in the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Now, Ferris turns 30 years old this month. It's been getting a ton of publicity, and so I thought it would be really interesting to talk to the guy behind this song, Ben Watkins. Ben is a fascinating character, but what's really interesting is that Flower Pop Man didn't last that long or do that much. But in the early 90s, Ben got really into the electronic techno wave that was happening in the early 90s with bands like Left Field, Underworld, Fluke, Paul Oakenfold. That stuff was almost taking over the world at the time. And he started another group called Juno Reactor, which became pretty huge. They're still out there going very strong. And Ben, through Juno Reactor, did a ton of other movies. Most prominently, probably, are the Matrix sequels. Now, think about that for a minute. When you listen to, and you go back in your mind, and you hear Beat City, and you think about seeing it, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, would you ever imagine the guy behind that song is the same guy behind songs in the Matrix sequels. I love connecting the dots that way. Those, These are some of my favorite kind of episodes of the podcast. What's also another tidbit of interest, in 1995, former porn star Tracy Lords put out her first and only album that I'm aware of, and her band for that album was Juno Reactor. I remember that, it got a ton of publicity, and it's a pretty decent album too if you like electronic music, which is great. So anyway, we talk all about this stuff. Ben is a fascinating character. I'm excited for you to hear from him. He called me from his home outside of London. I think
1: it would be really interesting to hear how you went from Ferris Bueller to where you are now in the techno world. I don't know that everybody, except for maybe your big fans, would connect those dots. So we got to start at the beginning. I mean, the flowerpot men. And this is something I, I reach out to a lot of people for this podcast who have songs on soundtracks because I think they're especially unique. Because, And this is true in your case. Uh, most people don't know the name of that song, Beat City. They don't know who sings it. But they've seen the movie a million times. It's one of those movies that's probably playing somewhere right now. All times of every day, and so it's almost like a hit song because it's so recognizable. But it's not a hit <laughs> song that there's a video to, or that lives on the radio, or anything like that. We, we never,
2: we never actually released uh, the records. Um, I remember that we we were really excited to. Our manager was a guy called Les Mills, and he managed a band called the Psychedelic Furs. Oh, uh, love them. So he knew knew John Hughes, and he was wanting to be like the music coordinator for John Hughes at the time. Got it. That makes sense. And uh, he said, you know, John Hughes is writing a new film, Um, maybe come up with a track. So I came up with a track, gave it to him. John Hughes loved it. The demo sounded great anyway. And then we got in this producer, Mike Thorne, that we'd just worked with in New York. He did like soft sell and Mm -hmm. done like a really strange version of Doctor John's "Walk on Gilded Splinters" in Run DMC. In Run, yeah, it was in Run DMC's studio in Nosfran in Brooklyn, and that that was a really great experience because then we went and met up with Doctor John for breakfast and Uh and asked him. I asked him if he would come down and sing on it, and he came down and did this amazing sort of voodoo rap. I'm getting lost on one here, aren't I? But anyway, oh, wow. Dr. John came down and did this amazing voodoo rap on it and completely blew my vocals way out the window. Wait, what was this? What's uh, Not on Beat City, You're on something else? Yeah, this, I mean, the first single was a track called Joe So Mean, which... Don't Jojo Jojo Jojo. sounds really quite like this was a precursor to Juno Reactor. That was done. That was done in '84, and then the summer of '85, we came and recorded this version of "Walk on Gilded Splinters" with Mike Thorne. Okay. And that's where Doctor John came in. Okay. I mean originally. originally we wanted, then... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. So well, originally we wanted like a sort of mad preacher and then, mm. then Mike Thorne said, Well actually Doctor John lives here, so let's meet up with him, so that's what we did and it was that was one of one of the really good experiences I've had in the studio seeing someone like Doctor John operate. I bet. I
1: bet. You're not the and first person it, to tell me that, actually. Other people have mentioned Dr. John specifically, and being in the studio with him and watching him perform as being a highlight for them as well.
2: It's just him. I mean, he's just such a very laid-back guy. I yeah. think he made me realize a lot just through, not necessarily even through talking to but just observing him that, yeah, you know, the music business wasn't about making it. The music business was just about riding the waves and how sure. you ride the wave. Interesting. And and it I am tell your just, perspective. That's all. After that, that's always been my perspective. Cool. You, know, you have good times, you have bad, and it's how you write the bad ones. Blah 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 cliché. Yeah, sure. But, you know, it's sort of it's true. It's true, it's not about trying to find some sort of golden mountain that you reach the peak and chuck your flag on. Right, right. But anyway, through all of that experience and then we got offered, you know, can you go and record this track, Beat City, properly? And we thought, okay, well, we've just been in the studio with Mike Thorne, so we might as well get him in again. But maybe that was the worst mistake because it was pretty horrible. Although it got in the film... The song was horrible, or the production, the experience of producing it was was horrible. It was frustrating. I don't think me or my partner at the time, Adam Peters, really knew that much about studio production, and it just felt really tame. Really? Yeah, and we never even got a proper mix out of it. I I remember Mike was sort of like (laughs) he was. being very sort of brown-nosing to the producers and saying, oh, how would you like this finalized? Would you like it all on separate tapes, you know? And I think he gave them four separate tapes, you know, drums, vocals, instruments, blah, blah, blah. And then they could mix it however they wanted to for the film. And so when I heard it in the film, I went, my God, it sounds horrible. Really? (laughs) I still think so now
1: that's so you know, funny cuz it's iconic. <laughs> I mean like I was saying nobody would nobody knows who sings it, but that movie is so beloved and it's the it's a perfect yeah, you know, well, as, soon as, think... as there's a tra- tracking shot across the big buildings of Chicago as soon
2: as your your song I wish comes it in. Grounded. I mean still when i hear it now, when i hear it now, <laughs> the vocals are way too loud and the drums sound soft and the guitars, I like the guitar. Yeah, yeah. It's surfy, the, surf rock guitar, yeah. Yeah. And but So there's some things I like about it, but my head as a producer, you know, even from the time that we did it, I was like, oh my God, how did that get in that film? Really? But, never, but, but seriously, I never got a stereo mix of that. So I don't know who's got the individual sort of tapes and, you know, yeah, it's a real shame. Oh man! But, well, uh, then it, 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 it should be a know. happy accident.
1: I mean, it's uh, it means a lot it to be, lots of other people, you know.
2: I mean, I still quite like the song, but I think I prefer the demos more. Wow! But maybe the, I, I've heard that a lot about other people, you know, Disasters. Yeah. The first album was much better on demo, right? Um, right. You know, more than likely was you know because it 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 did what it did for them, you know. Yeah. And I think the original demos had drum machine, and I think I prefer the drum. There's a Janice Long session with uh, Beat huh. City that we did for the BBC, and that's not perfect either because I think we did about six songs in about an afternoon. Oh, huh? But
1: if is that available? I mean, can people hear that somewhere if they want to know more I about? I
2: think it, I think I think it's online. Everything's okay. online. YouTube. Yeah. I mean, YouTube always sounds shit to me, but. Yeah, yeah. Huh. So
1: so the connection then is that your manager, obviously pretty in pink, psychedelic furs, uh, yeah. John Hughes knew. Pro, your manager was probably feeding him some music, saying, hey, if you yeah. like that, you might like this. John Hughes, I mean, the, the great thing about, one of the great enduring things about those great movies of his are the soundtracks, which is kind of, Unique anyway, because not every one of those films even had an official soundtrack released. Ferris Bueller's Day Off, I don't believe, even had an official soundtrack album you could buy. Even though the music in all of his <laughs> movies are so iconic, right? I think that probably think bummed you be, out I, too.
2: That bummed me out big time as well, because I think every other film John George did had a good soundtrack. Yeah, um, we were completely and utterly penniless, and uh, <laughs> you know, so. I don't, you know, we got the recording costs to do it and stuff like that, but I don't think we earned a penny out of it, you know. And my really, no. manager, And then my manager did like a really awful deal with John Hughes, so I think I ended up owning like 12.5% of that song, and that's trickled through over the years. But, um. Whoa. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so like money. The blues. They, yeah. Days of the blues just getting scammed. Money
1: money is a topic that we touch on a lot because I think it's interesting to find out how regular people to find out how uh, musicians pay their bills or maintain careers in music. So I'm assuming that because you have a song, and like I said, a movie that's played on repeat all day, every day, somewhere in the world,
2: you get a little piece of that, but it sounds like you don't. Not I get really. Timing. I think, yeah, like Peanut of that because the percentages that my manager worked out with the film company were so bad oh that's too bad but in some ways I sort of think of it I mean that happens all the time Yeah. you know like your manager you end up looking at a a deal that he's done and you go my god really yeah So you know managers are a thing that um, personally I've never found a good one I don't. I know there are good ones, but I, you know, in the yeah, time I've met, you've never been looking for managers, huh? working with managers, I've never found one that I've gone, wow, what a great guy!
1: Oh man, honest guy. You know. oh, that's too bad. Yeah, I've talked to people for the podcast about songs in way more obscure films, and it sounds like they do better than you do, and they get, you know, they'll get a couple hundred bucks here, maybe a couple thousand bucks there. Every quarter mm. or so, there's a little something that comes in. Well, everything you know? every,
2: everything has its ups and downs, anyway. But I mean, with the Matrix, that definitely pays yeah. for my. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that was a really good one. So yeah, I can't really, And I've had other sure. really, you know, first oh yeah, like you're all over the place.
1: Thing. Yeah, tons of movie music.
2: So let's okay. Not, so let's
1: wrap up. Oh, do you mind if we wrap up Flower Flowerpot Man real quick? Because I want to I want to find out yeah. the link. So did Flowerpot Man ever even put out an album? No. No, just a handful of songs, some singles we I think we released, um,
2: we released Josephine EP, which was three tracks, Walk on Gilded Splinters, which was two, and then we did this one called Alligator Bait, that was like four songs. there is actually an album of material there and there was a load more that we never recorded because there was never any budget because we had our own record label called compost oh okay and uh, so we met yeah i mean it was the sort of good old days of yeah trying to do it yourself before it was you know we're always wanting to be signed by Muse or beggars banquet or yeah whoever but we never were, so we just did it ourselves, and we could only ready for maybe, like, um, a single year.
1: Okay. Huh. Now, were you guys based... Did you ever, um, like, move your home base to L.A. or New York or something? Were you ever trying to get into, break into America, or were you always over in the U.K.?
2: Uh, I've always been in the U.K. Okay. Yeah.
1: Okay. Were the Flower Pot Men touring? Did they... Did you play and did you open for I don't know whoever was big Suzy at the time? And the
2: Banshee.
1: We did. Yeah, we and did
2: the Banshees. Banshee. Okay. We did the or Okay. Perfect. Yes. Those sort okay. Of bands. Great. And then then we were just doing. I must admit our gigs weren't great. You know we we maybe do like a few dates in Norway and. Huh. But um, we had, I think when we did the Tube, we did the Tube. Yeah, yeah. like a program here, and that went Yeah, around. I've seen it. I used to live there. And it was right at the arse end of the band, and and uh, I think the, the cello guy, the guy on electric cello, wanted to go and produce a band in Denmark. And I was an idiot, because I should have just carried it on with the other guys. But I thought, no, I want to do something different and that was actually around the time it started to really make noise on the gig circuit.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow. So the flower pot man, I mean, beginning to end, what maybe 3 years, 4 years?
2: I think 3 years, yeah. 3
1: years of really trying to make it happen. Um, yeah.
2: It was it was a good learning curve in in some ways. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Wow. Okay. So that uh, that grinds to a halt. Now, what I've, read, what I've read, and I don't know if any of this is true, is that after that, it seems like maybe you were a little burned out, and you decided to maybe to kind of travel the world for a while. And that <laughs> is when your mind—this is what I've read. I don't know if any of this is maybe, true. Yeah, maybe travel in the my world. Mind.
2: Really? Traveled the, we've traveled the world in my
1: mind. Because um, i did have that question. Uh, like, uh, how does a struggling artist afford to travel the world? But. Um, Apparently, while you were parents. doing this, what's
2: that? Yeah, usually with rich parents, but I haven't That's got rich parents. Yeah. I was living in a squat in London, hmm. and so luckily I, I didn't have to pay any rent, and I think it was that, I was so broke at this time, um, I thought, okay, I've already got to try and earn some money, and so I... I said about going for a major label deal, and I got it with Polydor. Had a band called Sun Sonic with the same guy from the Flowerpots. Okay. And again, it, it was quite a, it was okay for a while, and but essentially we built our own studio. Okay. And the money, rather than going into record with other people, we put it all into this studio in London, in a warehouse, and we taught ourselves how to mix and engineer but the trouble was that took so much effort that really we lost by the time we released an album it was real load of pants Mm -hmm. and that really forged the way through to Judith Reactor because through that I started playing around with loads more different electro ideas, meeting people people who were working in India people who were DJing in India and coming back saying hey this is really similar to what you're doing but check this out, this is more psychedelic. Yeah, okay. And then we start, then this like studio that I had, you know, became like a real center of the musicians that I was working with and we could just really, we went into that whole psychedelic, as doing yeah. production, things like, as producing bands that were doing early jungle and to keep it all going and stuff, producing singers like Tracy Lord's. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, the majority of my time just writing for a scene that didn't really have even a release, you know, you didn't yeah. release anything on record. You just did them and they went out as like tapes and the DJs would play them and you'd somehow I got more uh... I got more enjoyment just from hearing that people really? were going crazy crazy about the tracks in the jungle yeah. in India. Yeah, so, like a going into the chart because I'd been through that whole thing of people promoting singles doing videos and all this stuff and it's I imagine if it's a hit you're really excited about it but none of the stuff I was really was so I got a massive amount of enjoyment out of just hearing that people loved it
1: oh that's great but and then now, where sports. how does it go from a rock band? Now, granted, all I know is Beat City. That's the only thing I can go on. So that's me. Well, as I they... think
2: you have to listen to things like Joe. You have to listen to things like Joe mean, Like I was in bands when I was really young, doing rock bands, semi punk bands, and um, I got signed to CBS with one really hideous band. I'm not going to tell you about. Oh. And that right. that made me i then heard d a f in like eighty two
1: uh-huh,
2: and I fell in love with that whole mentality of electronic music right was it eighty two might been earlier actually and that and oh. I thought okay i'm not I'm not gonna do bands anymore, I'm just gonna do like electronics and acoustic instruments or electric yeah. instruments. and Joe somine I mean, is very much like that, it's electronic
1: okay. Okay, so where it feels like a drastic switch to me, who only knows Beat City and then Transmissions in 1993, you're saying if I knew more than Beat City, I would see that that transition is more gradual. It's
2: not as drastic yeah, as I... Oh, okay. yeah, well,
1: that's
2: cool. I mean, big, okay, big, great. Beat City, in a lot of ways, should have been more electronic. Oh, um, maybe that's why you don't
1: like it, because it doesn't, you know, it's, it sounded differently... In your mind, you've envisioned it more electronic.
2: I definitely thought the drums should have been really heavy electronic, not those sort of... um, I think it was Andy Anderson who came in and played that, those drums. Uh, But anyway, no, I didn't didn't like the drum sounds. Sounds like Genesis. Right, okay. So then in 1993,
1: Transmissions... You know, reactors start sticking up.
2: Or your sweet spot. This
1: is an. This is. I think I think I've
2: found I've found something where i was comfortable with it. Where Juno Reactor isn't about a fixed lineup. Yeah. It's about whoever wants to come in, do a collaboration. If the vibe is good, great. If the vibe turns crap, like in all the other bands I'd had, then you know, hey, the door's there, and someone else will walk in. And and that, that sort of fresh blood approach to Juno Reactor has been very good. And you've been able to, I mean, make a living
1: for twenty some odd years—a decent living. Yeah. Even without the movie music, would you just as a as a private entity through CDs, DJing uh, shows, tra you know, those kinds of things—would you be able to? Is Juno reactor a big enough deal across the world that you could just do that and nothing else? Well,
2: oh yeah, I mean that's what, that's all I do.
1: Okay, that's what I'm wondering. <laughs> if you if you if it's paying your bills and you're living comfortably based on your talent creativity. Oh, but I right wouldn't
2: now. say com. I wouldn't. Really <laughs> 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 yeah, maybe comfortably is a stretch. Yeah, huh? it's, like, <laughs> it's always like you know you're always planning. You yeah. If I was comfortable. If I was financially really comfortable, I'd more than likely do nothing because I'm really quite a lazy person. Oh, really? <laughs> but, um, but I love, you know, my brain's always thinking about maybe yeah. we could do this, maybe we can do that. Like in the summer, we've got this show called Juno Reactor and the Mutant Theatre, which is really, I've been thinking about this show for five years. Really? The that I met in Moscow and I got the opportunity to do it with a festival paying all the expenses and the fees and blah, 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 and we're going for it this year. Yeah. Oh, that's great, man. Good for you. I really like modulating the lineup. Okay. Some are forced, like I was working with a 5D South African group, percussion group for maybe 10, 15 years. But then it just yeah. got too expensive. Yeah, I bet. And now you got Budgie. Budgie's in your band now, right? Well, Budgie's is now on ho, in, on holiday with John Grant. So, Oh. I mean, it's, it's funny, actually, because I saw John Grant play in Israel maybe three or four years ago. Uh huh. And, and I thought, wow, that drummer's really shit. Really? And, I Budgie, and I said to Budgie, hey, <laughs> you know what? You should really go and audition for John Grant because he's, he's amazing, but his drummer's really useless. <laughs> and um, Budgie said, Well, I know John. So I said, Well, ring him up. Yeah. And so Budgie rang him up, and John said, Yeah, great. You know, come and do the new album. And now he's all off. He's off doing the tour of this. I know he might be touring for two years with him.
1: Yeah.
2: But John wow. Grant. He's, he's pretty hot
1: right now. Yeah. He's a big deal. I put out a great him. album last year and everything.
2: Well, I loved Pale Green Ghost but I think when I saw him in Israel, uh-huh. someone said, "Oh, do you want to come and see John Grant?" I didn't know anything about it, so I chucked a track up from YouTube, and like two hours later, I was still <laughs> listening to him. You know, Yeah, you know, I just to love that. Songs. His voice is amazing. Yeah, his songs are amazing. His lyrics are amazing. Roller coasters and Earl Grey malls, ocelot babies, but not bath salts, a harvest moon in the arms of a tree which has been growing there for centuries, bassoons, trombones, and French horn sections. Clarinets And string art collections Owls and guitars When they do not match Gilda, Chris and Sherry, Tina Amy and Rachel Dratch All these things of my favourite new guys. Uh.
1: Oh, that's good. So yeah, so Budgie. I mean, he's an icon. Susie and the Banshees. He comes yeah. in and out of your uh, Juno reactor from time to time. It
2: sounds well, like. He's been in, been with Juno in uh, maybe five years. I mean, I sort of shoot myself in the foot by saying that to Budgie.
1: Uh-huh.
2: <laughs> um, but it. I mean, Budgie to me is the best drummer in the world. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, know. I played with he's him. Bad. I played. I've played with a lot of drummers, and um, you know, like Greg Ellis, who was in the band from LA. He's amazing, but in a very yeah. rock. You know, he'll hit that snare so hard it'll get a mm-hmm. dent in it in about five minutes. You know. Nice. Uh huh. And but Budgie just has this swing. Yeah. He's just so gorgeous, and and he he's delicate. His he's a musician with his drums. Yeah. You go, you go to a gig, and if there isn't, like, a drum road, he's setting it up. Budgie will take that drum. He'll take the drum set apart, and it'll take him three hours with a new drum really? kit to, to get it up to how he wants to play it. Right, right. And th- and at the I do I don't time think we'll he be...
1: has, like, an exotic feel, too. Maybe I'm just applying it to those oh, Creatures so. albums. You know what I mean? So much interesting, cool percussion on those.
2: Hey creepers,
1: I'm talking to you. I've
0: got a message to give to you. Mm,
2: you got a problem. another drummer like him i'm surprised he hasn't been snaffled up by another band years ago me too actually
0: (laughs) and we went to uh
2: we went to india together and we did these gigs like down in way past goa i can't even can't even remember what it was called on this island and there was this real shit kit absolutely appalling you know i mean Uh it's been through a washing machine about twenty times or something, but even that sounded like a piece of shit. But Budgie made it sound like. That. Yeah, I believe it. I believe it. Yeah. yeah, he's amazing. He's
1: amazing. So interesting. Okay, so we let's. Uh, okay, so we've talked around the periphery. Now I want to talk about kind of the the trajectory of Juno Reactor. You come out in '93 with your first album, and I'm mm. guessing it does pretty well. I mean, I remember at that time getting really. I loved the techno boom of the nineties, at least from a state's perspective. And I remember even thinking at the time, I, I'm a big music guy and a big music collector and I remember even thinking for a moment there, I probably only wanna to listen to techno for the rest of my life. And I was I almost sold every piece of music I had that wasn't, you know, Aphex Twin or the Orb or whatever, you guys, that kind of stuff, massive attack. And just uh, thought, this is all I need. Now, I'm glad I didn't do that, obviously. But um, that, when it was at its height there in the 90s, it was so potent and so good. And that's when you guys are coming into, uh, coming into kind of success. So where does the Tracy Lords thing happen? Because I remember when that came out. That, was kind of, that got a lot of puffs. Let
0: me control.
2: Control. control Let me control it I think it was like, I was part of like a South London um, set of musicians that incorporated like Youth From Killing Jokes, Alex mm. Patterson of the Orb, Jimmy Courtie of the KLF. And we we're always hanging around and going off to sort of crazy parties, you know, doing loads of yeah. drugs and then sure. coming back and writing stuff. So anyway, Jimmy was doing the KLF. And he got asked to do, he got asked to do Tracy Lords and he said, Oh, I don't want to do it. Do you fancy doing it? And I said, yeah, right. It sounds fun. So he he sort of passed, he passed me on to the job. Then I I met the manager from LA and I met Tracy and I didn't, I didn't actually know anything about Tracy Lords. I didn't know anything about her previous career. It wasn't. There was no issues about it And mm-hmm. when I worked with her I never bothered looking up her previous work I just kept it on like A girl wants to be a singer Her mm-hmm. voice isn't so good But, I, you know, I liked Voices her Voices were she... integral to techno music I didn't think at that time well, They're more I of mean, an accent could... To me I mean, I remember spending two weeks on her vocal To making it sound like she could breathe properly <laughs> And but I did, it because, I did it because I really liked her. Uh-huh. I thought she was a really, really, uh, very focused woman. Yeah. And I thought I really want to make something decent for her, you know? So. Yeah, good.
1: Well, you did. Weren't you guys basically... When I say you guys, I mean, I'm realizing now I'm thinking in terms of a band. Like Juno Reactor yeah. is a band. Yeah. And you're talking more, you've been talking all along about it being more of a collective. Whoever's in yeah. is in, whoever's out is out. But Juno you know, Reactor, whatever they were at that moment, were basically her backing band, as I understand it,
2: right? Well, it was just who, what, Tracy Lords? Yeah, Tracy Lords. No, it was I mean... Or did you I just produce just, it? I don't know, I'm going by what I've produced read. It. I, I, okay. I got asked to do four songs. And I went off and wrote stuff and Tracy came over and we we're bashing around ideas and then we recorded them. Okay. You know, And then for some strange reason, all of those four tracks were really successful and got in loads of films. Yeah. It was number, I think control was number one on billboards and wow. uh, in America. So it did, did really well. Yeah. And, but it was a lot of work it I was believe a it. Heck of a work and i mean i think when the red hot chili peppers did a remix of fallen angel so what do Think they'd invited Tracy into this to uh, the studio to re vocal it, and um, obviously, they weren't quite aware of the amount of work that I would put into her voice. Uh huh. So, they then, when they realized halfway through the first take, they then thought, Okay, let's send this all back to Ben. <laughs> and then I said, She then I finished it off and mixed it in London. And, yeah, so their remix is okay. sort of had Red Hot Chili Peppers and me finalizing it, you know? Yeah,
1: okay. Does that, um, did, were you guys, was the Tracy Lord's thing a calling card? Like, did it sort of boost your profile in a good way? Or was there even so. some, you don't think so. I wondered if it was also in some ways sort of a millstone around your neck some people being
2: no, labeled as I, I was ready I was people would say to me, Oh, you know, press people would say, Oh, she's a porn star, she's a porn star. Yeah. I go, Well, she's just a really nice girl. Yeah. You know, she was what, twenty three or something when I met her and she had just been you know, obviously people some people have crazy beginnings to their life and she had one, huh? Yeah,
1: yeah.
2: Definitely she definitely needed a good second chance and I know that she was yeah. going for this Daisy film, I think it was Casino when I met her. Oh and it interesting. was back to her, Sharon Stone and Yeah. more. Moore. And I remember Tracy coming in going I think she got rejected and then later on in a press article Scorsese said, I really wished I'd picked Tracy uh, and when I watched that film, I thought, yeah, you should have picked Tracy because she was the, that girl. Yeah. Interesting. You know, uh. So, I mean, I really liked her. I thought she was a really very nice girl. Good, and good. But, but incredibly focused. Like, she would go back, you know, she couldn't sing something. She would go back to her hotel and speak to her voice coach. And, oh,
1: you interesting. You know, she was really
2: dedicated. And also the fact... You know, she had the thought that, yeah, this could be a good thing, working with Juno Reactor. Uh-huh. Whereas, it's, you know, way ahead of people like Madonna wanting yeah. to go electronic. So Definitely. Good, good for her, I say. Yeah, okay.
1: And it was good for you, right? I mean, it was it was ultimately a good move professionally for you. Oh, uh, no? I, I
2: okay, know. that's I what mean, I'm
1: wondering. No. I don't
2: know. I mean, it's not. wasn't a good thing and it wasn't a bad thing. I mean, we got some great tracks out of it, like Control would work on a psychedelic dance floor and it mm-hmm. would work on the the number one on Billboard and it worked in Mortal Kombat. So for a okay. track, it did pretty well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Paid you and back a lot, like, right? And then I think things like Fallen Angel was in that film with Denzel Washington and the guy from Gladiator, Russell Crowe. Yeah,
1: virtuosity. Yeah.
2: Virtuosity. So a lot of good things came out of those sessions. And I just have a good recollection of falling over an amplifier and that (laughs) amplifier going straight into my leg. I had to have about 30 stitches.
1: Oh, man.
2: (laughs) And Tracy Lord. (laughs) Tracy would just say, okay, we've got to get you to hospital and... She was incredibly cool, you know. We'd go around to this working yeah. man sort of cafe around the corner, and everyone's heads would turn as though it was the exercise just walked in, you know. <laughs> oh, that'd be so
1: odd! You're in a coffee shop. Well, that and even from her perspective, I mean, she's a famous porn not star. Not a coffee so.
2: shop. You're not talking a coffee shop. You're talking like London when it was like a real working man's. Oh. lunch cafe place you know you're not talking anything <laughs> yeah. anything boutique I mean you're talking like yeah. almost Dickensian this is like a Dickensian <laughs> place where yeah. people would just sort of come out of the darkness and sort of oh, carry on great. out of the mold that's a great
1: image yeah
2: and here comes <laughs> this so famous so cool. porn
1: star that they've watched <laughs> yeah. in, you know, in secrecy well, a, I for however long I don't,
2: think, I don't think they would think that so I think they would just think who's this gorgeous woman yeah What is this gorgeous, like an angel walking into (laughs) this really grubby cafe, you know? Yeah, into
1: our working man's cafe. Oh, that's (laughs) classic. I was looking at your IMDb page, and there's a ton of movies on there. (laughs) Some of them have used your music.
2: When I did Pistolero, I was watching loads of Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez, and others, oh, especially, nice. things like, especially things like *Dust Till Dawn, um, El Mariachi, all this sort of stuff, and that's when Steve, I met Steve through Tracy, Steve rang me oh, up and said, how did, you, how did you produce Tracy? Because I've been asked producer." and anyway, so he then said, Ben, do you fancy doing a tune together? I said, yeah. Do you fancy doing it on my album? I said, yeah. He came over for six days and we wrote this zero. At the end of the six days, he didn't really like it. I said, hey, Steve, it's not finished. He said, whatever. And so a few months later, I knew he wasn't that enthusiastic about it. And I said, hey, Steve, I'll pay you back all the money, all your expenses and blah, 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 and I'll Uh use it for my album. And he said, fine, yeah, do it. So I finished it and when he finished it, I think he went, oh, fuck.
1: <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I and
2: I called it like I called it the Tarantino Tarantino uh-huh. Radio Mix or something and and Tarantino got hold of it. And him and Robert Rodriguez loved the track and sure. on the speed c- on they said it like actually the story inside G- inside Pistolero helped create Once Upon a Time in Mexico. They say that if you buy the CD it's really? it on there. Yeah. yeah. So it was an inspiration for the movie? Yeah. Wow. Right which on. Was really funny, which was really funny because they all i have been doing when I was writing Pistolera and then when Steve had gone, I have this thing of once I found films that work with the tracks that I'm writing, I just uh-huh. keep them on cycle, 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 cycle. Yeah. And, and so maybe this energy goes into it, and then when Tarantino hears it, he goes, ah, this is just for me. That is so interesting. He's influencing you to
1: write a song that then influences him right back. Yeah. That's crazy.
2: It's crazy. crazy. Good for you, man. There's there's absolutely no managerial link. There's no record company link. There's no music coordinator link. It's like we found this invisible path. Yeah. Just because we both like certain things.
1: That is great. That is great, and that's so funny about Steve. Well, at least he's doing fine playing with Billy Idol, but I bet he regrets not uh, not being more supportive or collaborative during that. That's uh, that is
2: so. But well, he, he was he was great. He just didn't see it. Because, right. I mean, I mean maybe after then, the fact. Maybe, yeah. I mean, some some of I'll give him this. You know, some of my rough mixes like sound like shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and
0: uh I guess people really? just have
2: to have faith you know what you're doing, right? <laughs> yeah, you're just gonna say, Well, you know, it will be don't worry about it. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. Uh, but I didn't I really wanted the track anyway. Uh-huh. You know, I was I was hoping that Steve was going to not put it on his album. And um yeah, so Cool. It made a lot of money. It made a lot of money that track for the record companies and the publishers and Steve earned money out of it and
1: Sure. Good. Okay. And so, The Matrix. Now, tell me about The Matrix. How did that happen?
2: I was in a hairdressing place, well, hair salon having my hair cut with some guy, and he said, oh, you know, I'm hearing that you've been chosen for The Matrix. And I went, no, nah, I haven't heard nothing about that. And, yeah. and I, Well, how the fuck would you know anyway, you know? And... um and then anyway, two years later literally two years later, I got a phone call from a manager saying, Oh, the Wachowski brothers want to want us to go over there and meet them I think this was November. And they love your music and they just want to meet up. So anyway, we went over mm-hmm. there, you know, I was sort of thinking, you know, I love LA anyway. But you know, mm-hmm. we get in a great hotel. Everything's paid for go off and meet the Wachowski brothers, go into their office, and the first poster I see is this film called A Chinese Ghost Story, Mm. which at the time was one of my favorite films. Really? And so I go, ooh, I love that film to them. And they get great films and blah, blah, blah. And then they start talking about a book by, um, uh, what's his name? Who's the director who did Psycho? Uh, Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, Hitchcock, yeah, Hitchcock. Hitchcock and Truffaut. They start talking about this book about Hitchcock and Truffaut, where it was just letters written about every film. And I I said, Oh, I love that book. You know, I read them. I read a lot about (laughs) films and stuff like that. And um, so, luckily, it's one of the few books I've been reading at the time. And. So they, all these links started happening and then they said, oh, we we're really looking for someone who can cross orchestra and electronic and this stuff. And I put on this tune I'd just written a tune that was just electronic and orchestra. Uh-huh. And they went, this is what we're talking about. Really? And they said, look, the scene we want you to do is like the freeway chase. Uh-huh. We want you to sort of do this and blah, blah, blah. I mean, by this time, nothing was going in my head. My sort of my feet um, had suddenly sprouted wings and I was sort of flying high above L.A. at this time. Nice. Nice. You know, they were like, they were just saying, okay, we want you to do this thing, come over in January, find a place to rent, find a studio and get off working on it. So, yeah, that's how it happened. It was just one of those, you meet people and suddenly you sort of, you've got, there's a chemistry. Yeah, yeah. And we just had that chemistry, and I've met tons of directors before and since and never felt anything like it were these guys. You know, they didn't have any ego, yeah. they were great to work with. Uh, you know, their public persona is being kind of reclusive
1: and a little weird and all this stuff, but you're, re- you're meeting two regular guys and you're just bonding with them over mutual things that you love and mutual interests. So you're seeing a different yeah, I mean, side to these two. That's really cool. That's good. I don't
2: think I don't think they're weird at all, you know, I mean. Good. You know, Lana, Larry, Larry yeah. changed into Lana, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, at the time, yeah. I think Larry was wearing a lot of you know, fingernail polish and nail polish, but, you know, I do that. Sure. So it's sort of, it's sort of you know, transsexual thing or transgender thing doesn't bother me. I live in bright. No.
1: There's
2: tons of transgenders here. And
1: sure. Better he lives his truth, right? As they say. Whatever makes you yeah.
2: happy, I think. I mean, I was brought up on Bowie. You know, Bowie was yeah. my first life. So any sort of playing around with your sexuality doesn't, you know, to me, it's just part of the yep. rainbow. Sure. Yeah, but Yeah. that's a hot topic on here. I thought that the Chastisees were really fantastic to work with because they knew Good. what they were talking about. Good. They know music, and they really know how to direct a musician. Good.
1: And okay. Did they the, bring you back in to do any uh, new music? I think you're on the, the second sure. movie I, as well, right?
2: I mean, I did when I got green-lighted on the freeway chase... and I think Prodigy had looked at it, Fluke had looked at it, five other bands had looked at it, and um, it was the Burley Brawl. Oh, uh uh-huh. And I think somewhere in my brain I've got a natural CPM counter, and, and I knew exactly what it should be instantly, and so I did that in, I did a demo up in a few days, and they said, yeah, this is what we want. And so it kept on going, it kept on rolling. They kept on, I'd do one thing, they'd love it. They'd pass me another thing, I'd do it, they'd love it. And and then they said, would you come back for revolutions? Cool. And then it was just me and Don, me and Don Davis, who was the main composer on the film.
1: Yeah. And at
2: first, we, me and Don, didn't really get on. But then by the second film, we really trusted each other. And good. It was very good. It was, you know, I'd say maybe. The best thing, musically, the most amazing thing that's ever happened yeah. to me.
1: That's great, man. Good you know, you. see, I just, I like I was saying, I bet most people would have no idea that the same guy has integral songs in Ferris Bueller and The Matrix. Those are, you know what I mean? That's just on two completely opposite points of a spectrum. Yeah. And you're the guy that bridges that spectrum. I think that's fascinating good for you, Ben.
2: Yeah. It's really nice. I mean, film, film, film is like maybe, you know, if, as a musician, I'm really a musician, like a frustrated film director. Ah, uh, sure. Yeah. I can't, I can't, I can't make film. So I put stories into my music. You know, my tracks are always about something. I've got a film in my head and I mm-hmm. follow the path of that film through my music. Yeah. And well, that's maybe obvious. that's why so, maybe that's why it's so cinematic. Why it's yeah. cinema so much? Yeah, your music is definitely yeah. cinematic. I love it. And that's where I feel at home. I feel at home working on a film as much as I do making a tit of myself on stage. Yeah. <laughs> mm.
1: Cool. Well, look, going back, I mean, you've been in this industry for 30 years now. I'm curious, did you ever meet, have you ever met one of your heroes? No. Oh, really? No. I don't know what kind of circles you, I mean, you know, Steve Stevens, not that he was your your hero, but you've you've touched, uh, you've rubbed shoulders with a lot of really interesting people in this industry. I wondered if you had ever crossed paths with any heroes along the way. I well, guess Tarantino, maybe not a hero, but an influence.
2: Um, people that were heroes before I met them. Mm, I'd yeah. say, like, you know, ba- David Bowie was my biggest influence musically. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I saw the first gig I saw of his was in 1972 or oh. three called oh. Aladdin, the Aladdin sane Tour. Yeah. And that just, <clears> that, that changed my life. Yeah. Seeing that gig, yeah, and uh, um, I I always thought I would work with him. <laughs> Some sort strange growth yeah. coming out my head. I think I was in one theatre with him once, and mm. I managed to sneak into his party in London, but got thrown out before uh, I could get a chance to meet him. <laughs> and oh, it's great! I, th- I think maybe I think maybe if. You know, and they say never meet your heroes. It's not a good idea. Yeah. But I think he was definitely, you know, the one person that yeah. like, go, oh, wow. You know, and his guitarist yeah. was like a big hero of mine. And, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's a good thing not to meet them.
1: I know you mean. He's uh, my number one, too. This is anyone who listens to my podcast regularly probably gets sick of me talking about him because I talk about him a lot. He's. Point A. He's he's the thing. He's I don't know that a day of my life has gone by without me thinking about David Bowie. You know, well, he's incredible,
2: incredible yeah. a, a musician, and artist, and yeah. and yeah. turns out a really amazing person as well. Yeah. But I at the nearest I got to him was I was doing an album called Gods and Monsters, mm-hmm. and I and I had this had two tracks that really needed a piano player on it, a really good piano player. Uh And I was going through, MySpace was quite a good thing at the time. Sure. And and I came across Bowie's piano player, Mike Garson. Mike Garson? Oh, my gosh. He's a legend. And and it said, Sessions. And I thought, really? And they were like, you know, they weren't, they were like about, I don't know, I can't even remember how much they were. And so, anyway, I contacted him and said, hey, Mike, I'd like really love you to do a couple of tracks for me and he said sure just send over a stereo mix and I'll send it back four no, hours man. later <laughs> what? four hours, four later. hours four later, later Mike Garson sends back the yeah. music four hours later I got this I'd written this track which is very un Reactor I must admit
0: Sounds
2: yeah. uh, like Leonard Cohen or something like that I was really listening uh-huh. to Leonard Cohen at the time I wrote this track called Pretty Girl about my daughter and my dad, you know, the sort of two ends of the spectrum, you know. Uh-huh. And anyway, he put this amazing piano together. Amazing. And it sort of got that hunky-dory feel as well. Yes. I didn't know that was and him. Then... I'm going to go back and listen. You had it all Until the fall Now winters Are setting in I won the days now far away, never to return. I spend my days in city gray. And the dead just keep on talking. They can't disguise their soulless lives. All the hardships I keep yawning. And then on, um, I think the other one was Minds of the Free or something, he did this real jazz. The fact that like, the very first gig I went to had Mike garden playing on it, yes. and then he plays on that track, although a lot of people don't actually like that track.
0: Well, wow. it. whatever it means, you
2: know, I love to it you. because it sort, of, it sort of made. Yeah, that's the nearest I got to David Bowie.
1: Oh, that's great. Like, oh, good for you. I love that. I'm going to go back and listen again. I didn't know that. That makes it even more special. Yeah. Look, man, this was fun. Thank you so much for talking to me, man. I really appreciate it. And I love the fact that you've had this great, uh, unique, diverse uh, career and that it's touched people who didn't even know
2: they were being touched by you. Millions of people. (laughs) Don't you think that's That's interesting? I think that's interesting. Well, what I love, I love things like I was traveling in India and the track Navarres that finishes the very last Matrix. Uh-huh. It's very, in- like, the Wachowskis wanted it to have a feel of, like, the circle of the Matrix. And because they're so into Eastern culture as well, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. very much made it very Indian. And anyway, um, so it sort of reaches all these really brilliant highs and all this stuff and I was going through this village in Hampi, near Hampi in India, and there was like these little kids dancing, doing a dance routine, and they were doing it to Navarat. No way. What? Yeah, and and I was just really shocked and- uh, Sure. Yeah, it was really beautiful.
1: Wow. That's great, man. Those are the stories I love to hear. I don't know how often you get to tell those stories, so that's why I started this podcast, is to allow people... I want to hear stories like that. That is so great. Well, good for you. I really appreciate you doing this with me, Ben. Really do.
2: Nice one. Thanks, John. You bet.
0: There you have it, Ben Watkins. Interesting stuff, right? I again my favorite part one of my favorite parts about doing this podcast is connecting the dots in between benchmarks of i'm just gonna say our assuming you're around the same age as i am our lives ferris bueller's day off huge movie everyone's seen it a million times this song is a standout beat city is a standout and then we've also all seen the matrix movies And he's there, too. The same guy. You connect that dot. And that is amazing to me. So, anyway, thank you, Ben, for talking to me. Also, a huge thanks to the OG, Aaron Syrett. He's back this week to help us with this podcast. Thank you, Aaron, as always. If you haven't done it already, please go into iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. Please write us a review. That's very helpful. I've had some people mention to me that they have an issue sometimes with searching and finding the podcast. If you type in the hustle versus just hustle Uh, it pops up more readily that's what I've heard I don't know if that's true or not I think that might be the case please find us on Facebook you can just uh, search for us like our page you can stay in communication with me that way you can send messages through there if there are other people artists you love that were once big or almost big or you loved at one time and you haven't heard from for a while let me know who those people are and I'll try and track them down. You can also send me an email at the hustlepod at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter, at the hustlepod. I've said this before, admittedly, I'm not very good at Twitter. I don't really know what I'm doing. Maybe somebody out there could show it to me better or show me how to do it right, but I do my best. I'm out there if you wanna find us. Um, also, we I update the hustle podcast playlist on YouTube. If you type, type that in, You'll see hundreds, literally, of videos pertaining to all of the guests that we've had on the show so far. Uh, Obscure live clips, obscure interviews, anything relating to the people, just to kind of flesh them out a little bit more. We love these artists. Anyway, thanks everybody for listening. We'll be back next week. Talk to you later.